to Action's Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the future, planning for the future, imagining what trends are going, what possible worlds could emerge in the future is an important part of any endeavor. Whatever endeavor you're looking to take on or currently taking on, this is an important aspect of it. And it's an aspect that I've been thinking about for quite some time. I have always been interested in speculating about possible future scenarios. However, I'm relatively new to the field of futurism, which contrary to popular belief is not really about predicting specific events. It's more about imagining some possible future scenarios and also figuring out what we all need to do to be prepared to live in this world that is emerging. My guest today, Chet Sisk, is a futurist as well as the founder of Universal Basic Resources. Chet, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. It is my pleasure and honor to be here. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And just so that we hear it straight from you and get my audience oriented, in your own words, what is futurism? What does it mean to be a futurist? Yes. Well, really, a futurist is, at least my interpretation, is that you're a glorified journalist. I Hmm. came from a journalist background. So what journalists tend to do is follow a story in a usual 24 to 48-hour news cycle, and then talk about what it means and the characters involved. Well, futurism does the same process, except it carries it outside or that particular story outside of the usual news cycle into decades, maybe even centuries, Mm -hmm. so that you still look for the impact and how it affects society and all of those things. It's just a bigger version, really, as far as I'm concerned, of journalism. Now, I have to say that I usually use four elements that works for me when I'm doing a prediction about, I should use the word prediction because that's not quite accurate. It's more about making an assessment as to what's happening and then saying, this is what's happening and this is how this happening will probably affect your immediate world. I use my journalism skills in order to follow the story, to dig down and say, well, where did this come from? And what does it mean? Two, if it's a really important story, I'll go to people, the tip of the spear, to talk to the people on the front end, whatever that story is, and ask them, hey, what's going on? What's happening? And then they'll tell you. Three, you use a historical context, like, boy, have we ever seen this before? Where does this come from? The fourth thing is that you basically use your intuitive self to try to wrap your arms around what's happening and say, okay, have I seen this before intuitively in my own experience? And what do I think it will mean? And then you pull all those things together and then you come back and you say, hey, this is what I'm thinking is going to happen. Not a guarantee. It's just an assessment. I never thought of it as being as connected to journalism as you had mentioned, but yeah, there's definitely an aspect, especially the whole looking back into the past, because Futurism is about a story that's unfolding and things have already happened or similar events have happened in the past and imagining what's going to continue onward. For someone that's starting up their own endeavor, say someone's starting up a restaurant in, say, Five Points, it's a neighborhood in Denver just east of downtown that has, I would say, recently rapidly gentrified, for lack of a better way to put it. How would this person utilize this futurism process in their own life? What would this person starting up a restaurant need to do in the futurism realm to be prepared? Absolutely. One of the things about being an entrepreneur is that you really don't have time to kind of do 
all of this assessment stuff and what are the future projections for the community? I mean, you have to do some basic stuff in order to see if this is a good market for you or a good place or location. That's true. But what you do is that you get futurists to come and try to give context like this is how we think this is going to occur. These are the other elements in society that will affect your business not just like, okay, if you set up at this particular corner, you'll get a good traffic flow, but more like, should you even be in, in this particular business? How will the pandemic affect what you do going forward? What's the workforce going to look like in just a few years? Because if you seek to expand, you want to know what that looks like, whether or not there'll be employees available for your restaurant what about the product that you serve? What does that look like over the next few years? I mean, I can think about if you have a fish restaurant, people are running into a challenge, wild caught salmon, because there are fewer in now the environment. And of course, a trend person, a futurist looks at those kinds of things and says, hey, is that the business you really want to get into based around what we're seeing as projections? Those kinds of things, big picture stuff, because when you're an entrepreneur, your window is like this because you're just trying to like make sure that the bills are paid, lights are on, employees are paid, and you have product that comes in. So you get a futurist to kind of help you to get the bigger context so that you can start to think about it from a long-term perspective. And is that a common story? People kind of looking at what they're doing only in the context of the world of today and not really thinking about the world of three years from now, five years from now, 10, 20. I say three to five because especially when you talk about the workforce, we're in a time of fairly rapid change in the workforce given the pandemic showing people working from home more effectively than a lot of people had previously imagined. And a lot of people, especially people in my generation, demanding something different, almost quitting jobs because they're saying, why are you making us come back to the office five days a week and stuff like that? So is this a common problem that you see only looking at the world of today? Absolutely. And I think part of that is our culture. U.S. culture is deeply embedded into immediate return. And quite frankly, climate crisis is the result of short-term thinking and gratification and so it is testament to the faulty behavior of short-term thinking. This may sound a little political, but when you start to burn your own house down, it means that your thinking process is faulty. There's something wrong with short-term thinking. It does not connect the dots to future generations because of the fact that our emphasis is immediate gratification and materialism. There is no thought outside of the next quarter, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. It's not even people talk about, oh, we don't think about the next five years. I'm like, mm, people don't think about the next quarter. So the entire emphasis is about stakeholder gratification, making sure that people are able to get theirs in the quarter. That's just unsustainable, no matter how you cut it. There's no sustainability in it. There's no validation in it. And again, that validation is coming true through the crises, the series of crises mm -hmm. that we have now. I mean, think about even the pandemic. The bottom line is that we had an opportunity to get in front of it. We drifted because leadership was all about how can I get mine now? It's just an unsustainable practice, which is why futurists really are counter to that. 
we help to emphasize the whole idea of thinking about this thing holistically, our future, and getting out of these really short cycles. It's interesting because I've previously talked on previous episodes of the podcast, and I talk a lot in just general day-to-day life about all the different problems that have come from this short-term thinking. A lot of our problems with our work culture, the work culture that's led to I think the pre-pandemic survey on Gallup had only about 20% of people actually engaged in their jobs. And a lot of that, as well as some of the loneliness crisis and everything else coming from the instant gratification culture of, okay, it's easy to post a picture on Instagram and get a bunch of likes, but to build a genuine relationship with another human being takes time. You got to show up, you got to be there. Now, it seems to me that as a futurist, one of your key roles is actually combating this and getting people to think more long-term. One of the things I'm wondering is also as a futurist and monitoring trends, do you see this getting better in the near five to 10 year horizon? Do you see more people switching to thinking a little bit more long-term to thinking kind of like entrepreneurs have to do a little bit of it because building a business takes a couple years to actually build something and day in, day out, you're working and not getting the reward until later. Do you see this trend? Do you see us moving back toward more longer term thinking in the US and the rest of the Western world? I have to say, no, I don't. We have a death grip on short term thinking in that process. The only thing that comes to mind is that we're at a flex point where if we don't do something else, then everything will collapse. Just like that MIT report that said that civilization will basically collapse by 2040. I think it'll happen before then, but all of that is based around short-term thinking. And they said, we have to do something else. So there may be a flex point that will get us to the point of saying, oh my God, we can't continue to do this. This is crazy. But right now, we haven't proven that we're ready to go there, even in the face of climate crisis, even in the face of the threats to democracy, even in the face of income inequality, even in the face of all the pandemics and such. And most people don't recognize this, but there is a suicide, depression, opioid, deaths of despair pandemic that's happening in this country. So apparently Mm -hmm. those things aren't enough to get us to the place of saying we should do something else. So what futurists, at least what I seek to do, is at least give us a reference to a proof of concept model that may have worked at another time. And I Mm. do know that there were models in our past, and not just in the Western past, but around the world, that basically did kind of say, hey, listen, there's another way to live. And no, you may not necessarily be able to get that frappage in five minutes from your nearest Starbucks. But it is probably a better quality of life based around everything that we're seeing now. There were some ancient cultures that did things much slower. I know that there is a movement in Italy called the slow life movement where they're saying maybe globalization and all this fast get it together stuff is not serving us. And again, the evidence is all around us, but we haven't been moved enough to say Mm, we're going to take another direction. So again, my job is to say, okay, let's go see if we can find some proof of concept models that did exist to say, is there another life that we can migrate to? And I want to be clear, I am not talking about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I think that you can take the technology of today and the concepts of the past and merge them. In fact, we have to merge them into something else in order to create a different kind of world. 
but I don't know if we're up to the task. That's the mm. great challenge. The futurist basically, like myself, will say, this is what we see. Here are some possibilities, some directions we can go to. So we're at that place where we have to see whether or not we're going to meet the moment. I don't know if we will. It's even money at this particular point in time because we've been so entrenched into instant gratification and every man for himself model that has been championed by Western thought for such a long time. We think that it's the way that humankind has always behaved, but it's just that we've been in it for so long. And I ran into a guy and he said he'd rather watch this burn than to share or do something different. And that becomes problematic for everybody because if you're in a position of power, you're able to keep things the way that they are, even while the house is burning. There's an opportunity for us to get rid of the CEOs that if they're doing a bad job, a terrible job, they're basically sacking the entire company. The first thing you ought to do is get the board of directors together and other stakeholders and say, you guys are through. Apparently, we're not there yet, or those voices are being silenced by the management mm -hmm. to keep us from voicing that. But you would never run a company that way, ever. No mm -hmm. one would. I mean, they'd sit back and say, no, you sacked a whole lot of them, and you vote in a new management team that takes the company in a different direction, as opposed to watching the company destroy itself. No one mm -hmm. would do that. But for some reason, we have yet to arrive at that point, and that's our great challenge. We absolutely have to take a different take. And so you talk about taking a different take and you talked about some past precedences or some past proof of concepts. If my listeners were to take away three items, three things that we can incorporate into our thinking, into our day-to-day -day life that will incorporate some of these aspects of these past cultures that found a more sustainable path, what would those three things be? There's something to be said about antiquity, because I think a lot of times we don't like to look at the past because I don't know about you, but when I grew up, the past was always seen as mm -hmm. primitive. The past was always demonized. But what the past provided were some models that said, no, we may not have flying cars, but we were sustainable. There's an ancient African concept called Ubuntu. And it basically said, I am because we are, we are because I am. And the concept is all things and all people are connected. So imagine thinking about climate crisis, if we ever got to that place, but through the lens of Ubuntu, mm -hmm. you say, okay, well, everything is connected. So some of the practice that we try, we're doing right now, we have to discontinue because it is damaging an extension of ourselves. And that would be the planet. Mm -hmm. So that would change leadership immediately. There was also back indigenous cultures, there was a kind of a feminine aesthetic. Mm -hmm. We call it feminine principle leadership now, where the first questions that you ask are, is everybody all right? Share your stuff, be kind to others, do the right thing. And as my mother would say, make sure you have unclean underwear. <laughs> and I could never figure out what that meant, but that does matter. <laughs> yeah. So you would always say that, like, just in case you're in an accident, I'm like, mom, I'm thinking that if I'm in an accident, they're not going to be really thinking about whether I have unclean underwear. So she's always like doing it. But the bottom line is that it, the feminine principle leadership is that you think about others first as a part of your process, your way through the world. And so those two things, the Ubuntu, the feminine aesthetic, and the whole aspect of the slow movement. Mm -hmm. The slow movement is trying to recapture the idea 
of value inside of communities. That community is key. It's not, as you were speaking about earlier, this whole aspect of being alone and separation and how these things are haunting current society because people are not connected anymore. Ancient cultures understood the power of connection and community and wanted to find ways of emphasizing this because they knew that that was the lifeblood of how of the quality of life when you wanted a real powerful quality of life. It was really around making sure that you were connected to other people, that community would look out for you, that everybody shared stuff. They had the community garden and all of those things. Modern society has taken us away from that, and it still demonized that. It started with the idea of the nuclear family, mm-hmm. and, and now we have social media that separates us from other folks, too. Now, don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm not against social media. I think social media is a great complement to connection, but it can't be substitute to connection. That's why we have the anxiety and depression pandemic that's happening in this country now. So the whole aspect of reestablishing community, thinking about things from a feminine principled leadership version, where we think about others first and foremost, whether or not we're sharing. And then the African principle of Ubuntu, recognizing that we are all connected. So we're connected to everything and to everyone. There's not, I'm going to get mine and good luck to Mm -hmm. you. Even though the billionaires are trying to get to Mars, there's no place for us to go. We need to work this out with each other here. Community is also another thing that I've placed a lot of importance on. I've already had several interviews with different community leaders who are trying to bring people together in different circumstances. And I definitely do also see loneliness and this disconnection behind a lot of these other epidemics or pandemics that we've kind of forgotten about because of COVID. What you're saying is just absolutely on point. The idea that the loneliness epidemic is absolutely Mm -hmm. stunning. I mean, it it keeps showing up in the stats. What is it? Five, six years in a row now that we have a declining life expectancy in a modern Western country. We're going to live less than we did in, say, 2000 Mm -hmm. because of the fact that the opioid, the obesity epidemic, which is obscene. Yeah. The deaths of despair you were mentioning. Yes. Yeah. The deaths of despair thing is that what people really haven't really figured this out. And now it's manifesting through the uptick in crime that we're seeing that's directly related to the pandemic, but it's also a trend as people are actualizing the frustration they're having with these multiple crises. I don't want to paint a sad story, but I have to at least get us to the point of recognizing that we're beyond in trouble. Mm -hmm. We literally have to reimagine everything that we know in order to make this thing work. Otherwise, we may be a footnote and perhaps other civilizations never got to this point. But you and I talked about this one other time about the Chartikov point, the Chartikov theory. I have to share this real quickly. Of course, I'm a geek, a science fiction geek, so I like all of this stuff. But the whole Chartikov point that people talk about, well, other civilizations may exist in our universe, Mm -hmm. but where are they? And many of them probably got to the place where we did, but didn't make it because of this inflection point, this filter. There's a filter that exists that says you're going to have to become something extra above and beyond anything that you know in order to get to the next point of a civilization. 
I believe that's where we are right now. So we're facing that challenge. Absolutely. I tend to think of it as a gift because we had these long-term systemic crises, systemic racism, income inequality, misogyny, uh, wars and rumors of war, pollution, now climate crisis. Those things were not sustainable. They have gone on for too long. All the crises are just coming to this point of asking us to do something else other than what we've Mm -hmm. done. And so to me, it's an opportunity for us to say, okay, let's reimagine how society works. Let's lead by example. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an opportunity that will get us to that level one civilization that the Chartikov theory talks about. And I think we can make it. Like I said earlier, it's even money. But if we do get to the place of creating something special and gathering all of our wits about us and pulling people together, utilizing some of the theories and practices of the ancients, bringing them forward with the new technology, we could make it. It sounds like it's a dramatic and a bridge too far for most of society, but I've learned this more than anything. Never underestimate the human ability to rally. Mm -hmm. We've seen it before. We can rally. We've seen it plenty. Yeah, we've seen it before. We've done it. Now, this is bigger than anything else that I've seen historically, but it doesn't mean that we don't lack the ability to rally. First, I want to orient my audience in case people are not familiar. I know I wasn't familiar when you first brought it up of this theory about the level one society and what that means. Do you have a link or web address that you can kind of provide to my audience if people want to look a little bit more into this concept? Ooh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I should have brought the link. I can't say that. I will say this. <laughs> I know, right? There is a series. I don't agree with everything that they do, but I don't agree yeah. with everything my wife said. There's a series on YouTube called Unveiled, and they produce a series of videos that just challenge the thought process that say, well, what happens if we're at an inflection point that's asking us to become mm-hmm. greater? And they go into detail about what would a level one, level two, level three, level five civilization look like if we made it through the filter. But every civilization, and this is all just projection, but they're, I mean, they're just imagining it. They say, well, what if this is that point, that filter point for us, that's asking us to become greater. And I'm like, yeah, I'm with that. I think that's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. So I think the tools are there for us to make it, to become level one. But we really have to rally the troops in a way that we've never done before, because as you mentioned before, you were right to bring this up at the beginning of our conversation, that the loneliness and despair is so real, it's making people unwilling to even do anything. They just want to just Netflix and chill. They don't want to do anything else because there's... They're like, I can't handle anything more. Mm -hmm. Honestly, there was a report in the Harvard Business Review just this week that said we weren't meant to navigate this level of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. We don't have the skills or even the capacity as human beings to navigate this level of uncertainty. So people are overwhelmed. They're just like, I can't handle it. So where we really become important in your audience, for sure, is that some of us are just going to have to step forward and be brave. And just be brave and show that bravery to the rest of our peers, our people, our communities, because people are losing hope and they're falling fast. Mm. So, and that brave, like go out and do a rally and make people angry, the, the cult of grievance, watch out for that because there is a cult of grievance out there where people, all they want to do is talk about all the things. Oh yeah. It's everywhere. 
Yeah, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And all they want to do is talk about what they're not getting. Yeah, there's a difference between talking about what's wrong and actually doing something about it. Exactly. That's the culture that we'll have to create is one that says we are going to do something else because we know it's important. And no, it may work, it may not, but there is Mm -hmm. hope because we're going to do this. And that's completely different cult of grievance. And I would say that the guests that I brought in onto this podcast thus far will continue to bring in going forward, represent to one degree or another, this set of brave people. Some of them have started up some community groups and other ways to combat loneliness because one of the problems that I observe and one of the reasons why I think we might be so lonely is that it used to be that there were places you would just naturally run into other human beings without having to plan, without having to send a text message, create an event. You would just run into them. And if you run into people enough times, you eventually form connections, you form relationships with those people. But nowadays, in a lot of social circles, it's all ad hoc. It all involves someone having to step up and plan. And I think there are a lot of way more minor heroes that are the people that just say, okay, here's my community of people. Here are my five best friends. I'm going to be the one that starts that group text chain and say, let's all go to this concert or let's go all to this bar tonight. Although they're like kind of not the heroes you think of in the big picture, they are kind of being heroic in a way in how they're bringing people together and making sure that the people around them don't lose the connections with them as well as with each other in their circles. Yeah, I agree. I want to add a little something onto exactly what you're saying, because you're exactly right. But now we're going to have to elevate those voices because people need to hear that these brave people exist and there is hope. Unfortunately, what's happening is that the cult of grievance has taken over the airwaves. They're louder And people with grievances tend to get really loud. They have a big microphone and there's money to be made in just grievances. So we're going to have to elevate the voices of what I'm doing. This is how I'm combating this. And I'm grateful for your podcast by just making sure that people know that folks exist, but we're going to have to do a hell of a lot more in order to meet this moment because we're out of time and we have an intractable loud voice of grievance that's drowning the rest of us out. Anything to get those voices, those people who are actually doing something, those proof of concept models that are actually in place and people are actually doing something. One of the things from an individual standpoint is kind of battle we all kind of have in our head between the easy way out and the more challenging, but oftentimes more rewarding way out. When you have a problem, it could be anything, the easiest thing to do is to feel that instant moment of vindication, to feel like, okay, it's all those people's fault. It's all the other side of the aisle's fault, whether it's politics or it's all this other group of people, this group of people over here versus the harder thing is to, first of all, look inside yourself. Like it or not, nearly every single person in some way or another contributed to this. We all kind of created this. The same way, the easiest thing you can do when you're home and tired is flip on the TV or scroll through social media. It's harder to call a friend and to like decide what place you're going to or harder to start a group text, but it's often more rewarding to do that. And a lot of the decisions we make, there's the easy way, but there's the way that requires a little bit more effort, but gathers a little bit more reward. And I actually kind of see that come to think of it as one of the biggest challenges that we all have in our minds is... How do we consistently decide I'm not going to take this easy way, the vindication, that person with the big megaphone and the talk show with 30 million followers? Oh, look, I'm vindicated. It's not my fault. Well, that's great. But what are we going to do about it now? 
that's the great challenge of our time is being able to create this kind of introspection. Like you said, what's my part in this? And you're absolutely right. All of us have played a part in this, either by our complicity to it all, our silence, our biases, Mm -hmm. our unconscious contribution, all kinds of things. We're a part of it. But to me, that's the part that gives me the juice, knowing that I have contributed to it. So it makes me say, damn, I'm responsible. There's an accountability element that has to kick in. And people like, oh, no guilt and shame and stuff. I'm like, forget about guilt and shame. Let's talk about accountability. And and the generations to come, our kids and everything else, that part is constantly being sidelined by the cult of grievance. And unfortunately, we fostered that as a way of life. We fostered the idea that it's not my fault as a way of life. Mm -hmm. Whenever I do DEI work, people always come back and say, well, my parents didn't have slaves and I don't understand why you're approaching me about this. It's not whether or not your parents or you or anybody else had enslaved Africans as part of your portfolio. It's about what do we do now in order to make this thing right so that we empower our entire community as opposed to isolating and saying, I'm not responsible, which is always the death knell. Anytime people get to the place of saying, I'm not responsible or I'm not accountable, we're toast. Mm -hmm. No society can survive masses of people not being accountable for the well-being of the society. No society can survive that. Look at the ancient Romans. I've constantly used them as a form of reference, but it doesn't match up that neatly with where we are. But there was an element where people just didn't care. There was no one that was accountable. Lack of accountability always precipitated the collapse of a society or even a civilization. So there has to be something. I'm not quite sure what it is. All I know is that if we keep providing proof of concept models of another way forward, we have a shot. We have an opportunity. Does it mean that our proof of concepts work in the same way, but it does provide us with an opportunity to create something that could be really special and could save our lives and the lives of generations to come. But once you disconnect, though, I don't care how you cut it. If you create a level of disconnection from the planet, from other people, from yourself, you're toast. It doesn't mean it can't be recovered. You can recover your connection with self, your connection with other people, and your connection with the planet. But you're going to have to stop and say, what ideas have I held for so long that would precipitate this level of disconnection? To me, the real challenge is the idea that the Western concept of every man for himself, it's crazy, or rugged individualism. They try to dress it up and call it rugged individualism. And I know some of the listeners will probably disagree with me on this, but rugged individualism says that you don't need anybody else and you're the lone wolf. You come in and save the day. That's not how human beings were designed or when we were at our most effective. We're effective when we work in community and when we're connected to each other. Once we do the disconnection, we become selfish, self-indulgent, and we're willing to sacrifice our planet just so that we can get ours. That's insane. That's a form of insanity. So that level of connection, it's the key. One thing I'd like to add and make sure that I point out on this is that whole, this isn't my fault. I'm not responsible. It'll make you feel better for a couple minutes, maybe an hour, maybe even a day, but in the long run, it doesn't. In the long run, it 
actually takes the power away from you. One last thing I want to make sure we cover before we wrap up is your organization, universal basic resources, what you essentially do and how anyone in the audience that may be looking to get a hold of you and want to talk to you about futurism or universal basic resources would go about contacting you. Yes. You can write me directly at chetsisk.com. That's C-H-E-T at C-H-E-T S as in Sam, I-S-K.com. And I respond to almost all of my emails every once in a while. (laughs) get something where people just want to rag and say nasty things. Believe it or not, I get hate mail. Can you believe that? Actually, I um I learned a while back that almost anything you do, if you get noticed, you're going to get hate. It's crazy. So if you're going to write some hate stuff, please don't. But if you have some ideas and some suggestions, or you just want to make contact with me and my group of colleagues that I work with, please write me directly. Go to our website which is www.universalbasicresources.com. We have a new website that's coming up and we're really excited about it. We have a team of people who work with me in futurism that basically are designed to do one thing, provide us with hope going forward in changing times. That's the thing that I've noticed more than anything is that in a time of challenge and crisis, that people really just need a direction forward. Otherwise, again, you're only stuck with the voices of doom and gloom. And there are some people, there are sections in our society that want to blow everything up. They just want everything to get toasted. That's all they want. It's part of their religious belief. And some of it's part of their cultural belief. They just want to blow stuff up. They're nihilistic and they're self-sabotaging and they're suicidal, unfortunately. However, what we're doing is that we're providing like, okay, Yes, you heard the other guys, but here's the other stuff. It's not like hope and pie in the sky stuff. It really is just based around the data that exists and the best practices from the past that we can implement going forward. So go to our website and you will see those people and you get a chance to sign up for free to get the coaching that our team provides Yeah, it's a new venture for us because all the places that I speak in around the world, they kept coming back and saying the same thing. Like, we need some takeaways of a way forward. And we decided that, okay, well, let's do some online coaching so that we can help to make that happen. So we're very excited about that. But go to the website, universalbasicresources.com, and everything will lay it out. We're optimists, but we're not blind optimists. We're fact-based. And I think that's a great way of truly differentiating yourself from this culture of grievances is to actually do something, is to actually find a way for hope. Because all you can do, regardless of where things are now, regardless of what seems like it's headed in the wrong direction, the only thing you can really do is try to make a change, try to do something, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But if you do nothing, it's guaranteed it's not going to work. Yes, you've made a decision when you do nothing. Again, I want to give us a little love out there because we've never seen this amount of uncertainty at one time. So people are paralyzed by their fear and uncertainty and all of these things. So all we're seeking to do is to try to quiet the noise and give you the kind of coaching and support necessary so that you too will become one of these people that say, oh, let's create something. This is an opportunity. Let's seize the moment. Again, it's not pie in the sky stuff. There's just basic stuff that all of us actually can do. It seems as though the grievance cult is just dominating everything. Cult. That's the word you used. Yeah, it's, it really is. 
Okay. I was like thinking I had the wrong word there. No, it's a cult, believe me, because you have to have a kind of a leader of the cult that emphasizes the worst aspects of humanity. I'm old enough to remember the Jim Jones cult out in Guyana, almost thousand people who killed themselves because of the fact that this guy saw fear and hate and desperation around every corner. And he emphasized that to his followers. They bought it and they eventually drank the Kool-Aid as the term goes. So what happens is that you lose vision for anything else outside of the fear and the desperation. There's no other place to go. And they only escape again at the death of desperation. They just killed themselves because they saw no other way, but the other ways existed. So our job is to make sure that the other ways are out there. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for reminding me that we are under a lot of stress. Therefore, we need to give each other and give ourselves a break for whatever we may have done in the distant or recent past and just kind of look within ourselves. I'd also like to thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes, sharing your ideas about what futurism is and how we can go about doing the best we can to create a better future and point out that the idea of slowing down sometimes, we see some other areas of the world where people slow down. We're talking about those uh, blue zones that people talk about, the areas where people live commonly beyond 100 to contrast our declining life expectancy tend to be areas where people slow down. And also from what I've read about them and heard, they're areas that focus on community, just as you were also talking about. So slow down, focus on community, give each other a break and recognize that productivity is not the only thing valuable in this world. One of the things that I think we've all realized over the course of the pandemic and hopefully earlier is that one of the most valuable things we do is just laugh with the people that we love or people that we're friends with or friends and family, just laugh with each other, share experience with each other. That's such an important part of the human experience that doesn't oftentimes get featured. I was just going to say, you're right about the whole aspect of us laughing together and sharing a meal. Mm -hmm. I cannot say that is fundamental to all community shared meals. It's a, whatever you do, if you can't do anything else, Take a bottle of wine and a roast over to your friend's place and just say, hey, listen, I'd like to kick it with you just to share some time. Mm -hmm. There's a trend that's happening out there that I think is very cool. Let me just say this. I'll make this real quick. When I was growing up, they used to have what they called blue star homes. Did you ever hear about those blue star homes? No, but I did grow up in the Italian-American five-course family meal culture on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hear that. That's the African-American experience as well. But there used to be this thing where people would put a, a blue star in the window and it wasn't necessarily related to the military. It was related to if you are a child and you're walking home and you have a challenge, there's something, this home was a refuge. So now people are running with this new trend. It's called the purple star home. And basically they put a purple star in the window and say, if you want to get together for a meal, bring the kids over, have a conversation all of these things, I am a place where you can have that refuge, but you'll have to check your politics at the door. Wow. The purple star home. Once again, that's another area of hope, another place where we see people that are doing something about it. And what I love about that also is that it's something small, just like the small heroes that are texting their group of friends to get together and some of those other things. I don't mean small, but smaller scale, whatever. The just putting out that purple star, say even if it's just once a week and saying, we're going to see if anyone wants to come in, 
that's just an amazing area where you can start doing something really small about these issues. Thank you again for joining us on Actions Antidotes. And thank you to everyone for listening and stay tuned for more episodes where we're going to bring in these brave people, as we were talking about, these brave people that are stepping out there and doing things about the problems. And hopefully you'll be inspired by one or more of these guests, hopefully all of them actually. And you all have a fantastic day and have a fantastic future. Thank you.